Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Reading today is Psalm 81, verses 1 through 10. Text is on the screens. Sing for joy to God for our sing to joy for God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Begin the music, strike the timbrel, play the melodious harp and lyre. Sound the ram's horn at the new moon, and when the moon is full, on the day of our festival. This is a decree for Israel an ordinance of the God of Jacob. When God went out against Egypt, he established, he established it as a statute for Joseph. I heard an unknown voice say, I removed the burden from their shoulders. Their hands were set free from the basket. In your distress, you called and I rescued you. I answered you out of a thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear me, my people, and I will warn you. If you would only listen to me, Israel, you shall have no foreign god among you. You shall not worship any god other than me. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. My name is Jason Anderson. I'm the pastoral resident here. Children are being dismissed right now, except for K-2. K-2, their class is going to be through um, the middle of August. will be in the service. And so August 20th is the day that they'll have class again. Uh, I did also put the iPad back there. Hopefully it's working. Uh, I put it there at 10. But if it's not for check-in, sorry. Um, either way, what we have for the kids uh, is this bulletin. You see, this has been already used uh, for kids. And it's just a simple way to encourage engagement in the service. Because we want to encourage our kids to be worshipers with us. So as you come in, they're at the usher stand up there. Kids can grab a K, uh, bulletin and use that. And kids, welcome to the service. If you're here, is, you get to sit through some sermons. I want to encourage you to use this time well, um, participating and just even listening. So maybe plan on hearing one thing besides the word Jesus. And at the dinner table today, say your, tell your parents what you heard. So something that stood out to you that was interesting. You can even draw a picture. So draw or write something in the bulletin of what you heard and try to avoid drawing the ugly face of a person standing up here. Draw something more meaningful, maybe something about Psalm 81. Um, and you can also think about preparing families with your kids. So maybe read through Psalm 82 this week, and you, even if you don't have kids, you can do this. Prepare ahead of time. Meditate on the Word as you're preparing to receive it. Next week, as Brian opens Psalm 82, have a question ready, thinking about what you're going to hear. Ask, is Brian really going to get to the real meat of Psalm 82? Maybe he, he'll miss it completely, and you'll be able to have a good discussion afterwards. Uh, but maybe that's just because you, something stood out to you that didn't stand out to him as he prepares the word. So 
and all, all that to say, welcome. You can bring your Bibles, especially the second graders who, you know, they got a new Bible. Uh, you can bring it and use it as we hear the word proclaimed this morning. Now, in two days, it's July 4th. Since today's July 2nd, you add two and it's July 4th. But it's also not only a day, but it's a holiday. It's Independence Day. I think it's a wonderful illustration for us this morning. When we, are th when we think of July 4th and what we do on July 4th, wh what do we do and why do we do it? It's interesting in a lot of ways, in my opinion. We call it Independence Day. It's the day that we memorialize or celebrate as Americans our independence, where our, we declared independence from England, or from, I don't know what we called, from the, the, the British Empire. So as you think of your celebrations of Independence Day, if you are an American, do you make Independence Day a good memorial? Do you dress up in George Washington suit or John Hancock suits and sign papers and pretend to memorialize what happened all those long years ago? At least for me, I don't do any of that. I just turn the grill on or go to my parents' house and shoot fireworks off and play games. Maybe I get annoyed at all the people shooting off fireworks right next to my kids' bedrooms and say, why are they doing this at midnight when my kids are trying to sleep? A few years ago, I know at least one of our baby kids definitely did not sleep for a long time because of the fireworks. I don't think I actually memorialize the fourth is the point. I don't memorialize and remember what happened on July 4th, 1776. I just give my kids sparklers. Um, now let's contrast that with a different holiday. Maybe you celebrate July 4th as a good American rememberer. But maybe think of a festival that Christians, we Christians celebrate, Easter. This is a deeply Christian holiday. We do an Easter egg hunt or two. We have a big meal, but because I'm a Christian, I would, my conscience would have a harder time not participating in a, a gathered worship service as a church where we actually remember and memorialize the event of Easter. Think of the difference between Independence Day, grilling hot dogs, and lighting sparklers, and Easter, where we worship together as a church. Easter is one of the biggest events in the church calendar. So skipping this gathering of the local church, my conscience would be pricked. I would feel sad to have missed out on such a glorious memorial. If all I did was say, oh wait, I'm hosting a big crowd today at my house Easter afternoon. I need to make sure to cook the ham right and get the potatoes good. And man, I need to set up right so I can fit all 50 people in my house. And then I said, you know what, I can't go to church on this, this morning. I, I think I would be misordering my priorities. It really doesn't matter if I have a big meal if I haven't 
if I miss out on worship? To worship, to remember the risen Lord, to be reminded of His cross, His resurrection, and our participation in that as we do the baptism and the communion. These are central to my whole being as a Christian. This is what Psalm 81 is doing for us. It's calling us away from how I celebrate July 4th. I'm I'm sure you all are better citizens than me. And calls us to a more meaningful remembrance. Psalm 81 is the first psalm. We did kind of one last week, Psalm Psalm 100. But it's the first psalm in this summer series. Doing 81 to 90 this year. And it is a psalm for a holiday. It's a call to remember and to act as we remember. Look at verse 3. He says, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at, at the full moon on our feast day. It's talking about all these feasts, these new moons. We don't have the full moon holiday, but we, these are religious holidays for Israel. We have Sunday every week where we remember Many people that have studied this psalm, the people that write about it, suggest it's not just any feast, but it's probably even a really important feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. This is, this is one of the great feasts of remembrance in Israel. We'll think about this more throughout the, this morning. But the point of the, the psalm is inviting Israel to remember. Make this feast Fitting remembrance. Don't just do it because it's the thing you do this, this week of the year. And at least for Psalm 81, there's two, there's two things that we ought to do. As we remember, we ought to sing, shout aloud. And as we remember, it draws us to repentance, to acknowledge our sin and the hardness of our hearts. In a lot of ways, this is a really simple point. We could preach this every Sunday. But I think it's one that we ought to rehearse, and we can rehearse time and again, and find benefit in. So, let's pray as we begin to consider this psalm. Our Father, we we come to you now when we receive this psalm and hear it. We ask that as we remember the great works that you have done in the past that we would be incited to sing with joy. And as we are singing with joy, we we ask that you would, as you prick our consciences, that we would, in faith, turn to you and turn away from our sin. We thank you for the preached word. We thank you for the enacted word that we, as we are anticipating, also participating in communion, we pray that you would guide us now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember last week, Josiah mentioned that psalms have arguments, and so poems in general are actually good poems, not, you know, not Shel Silverstein, as good as they are. But poems, adult poems, I guess you could say, some kids' poems too, are the most densely written arguments you could ever have. Think of a sermon, and it's a half an hour of an argument. Think of other things, and they're very long, but a poem can be five verses. 
but it can be a very strong and complex argument displaying both beauty, affecting our emotions, but also calling us to something good. And so I, I think Psalm 81 is a good example of that. There's an argument here. And he begins, the argument is, sing to the Lord because of what he did in the past. And, because of, and turn to the Lord, repent or turn, because of what he will do. And the order of the sermon is just going to follow that. We're going to first consider singing, then we're going to remember, and then we're going to consider the repentance. So first, the psalmist invites Israel to sing, to shout. It's the first word here, shout for joy. Now, I didn't hear anybody shouting this morning as we were singing, but maybe we should be a little more hearty in our singing. This, hap this word happens all throughout the Psalms. It says, shout aloud. It's, a, it's quite the call. But again, it's not just because it's something simple. It's not like football. It's not like a Taylor. I guess the Taylor Swift concerts were louder than the Vikings, Vikings game. The decibel people were, people were confessing this. But no, it's not any of that. It's even more than that. It's something more important and meaningful than that. This is, we are worshiping our God. And if we're worshiping our God, it's, he's worthy to be shouted to in a good way. Make a shout to God our strength. Sing, play all your instruments, all y'all's instruments. It's quite the call. In these first few verses, we get one of the biggest collection of instruments that are in the Psalms. We got tambourine, we got lyre, we got harp, we got trumpets, all the things. Outside of Psalm 150 in the end, the fat last few psalms, this is it. This is the orchestra of God. It's a fitting thing to invite the gathering of God's people to sing. It'd be really, it'd feel really out of place for a Christian gathering to not include singing. Can you imagine Easter without song? The music? Can you imagine on Easter, Josiah gets up and says, we want to temper our expectations here. We want to really think this morning. And because it's such an important event, we're going to not sing. Just, he's not going to do that. Of all people, Josiah wouldn't do that. He's going to sing. And Josiah was trying to hammer this home last week. Singing is important. It's essential in the life of the, the congregation. It sticks the Word of God to my bones, to my heart. It trains my love and my desires. It aligns them. Of myself, my desires are the most erratic thing you can think of. But as we gather on Sunday and we sing aloud, these, these align our hearts. You may have read Plato's Republic, uh, where he says, well, this is what the ideal republic is going to be. This is what it ought to be like. And one thing he talks about is like, well, I think we should maybe ban poetry and song. Why? It bypasses the mind and goes straight to the heart. It just screws people up. Right? That's not what he said. He kind of says it more argumentatively, like in an argument. But why do we then sing? Well, any old song might be problematic. Songs that flow out of Scripture affect our hearts 
and it's for the better. Because I think sometimes we need that. We need to be corrected, not just in our minds, but in our whole selves. And if you've ever actually sung a psalm in more literal verse, the raw expression of that psalm, it's actually astonishing, and, but it's soul-shaping. Imagine singing Psalm 81. Imagine singing Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12. But my people would not listen, would not do what I required. Can you imagine singing that? Here, I have, I have a psalm put to verse for you, for a song. But my people would not listen, would not do what I required. So I gave them up to follow what their stubborn hearts required. Can you imagine singing that? That's what Israel did. That's what most of the church did. They sang these songs that cut different ways. Is it a good thing for us to have sung such harsh words? What's the point? I think that if we were to sing them a song like that, we would be forced to make these words our own, which brings conviction. Oh, yeah, that was my stubborn heart too. But also brings commission. Says, oh, I ought, I ought to do something different. I ought to be considering what this psalm is saying to me. We would see our heartless participation. We'd also commit our lives to live in the way that God commanded. Singing Scripture makes the words of Scripture our own. And it's a command here to the people to sing, to sing at the new moon, at the full moon. In other words, feasts of religious significance. Verse 4 turns our attention to why we should sing. God commanded it. It's the rule in Israel. Now, that might sound a little odd, especially as an American. Maybe I don't embody all of the American examples, but my American heart says, I don't want to be told what to do. <laughs> I want to do it out of the overflow of my heart. I want, to be it, I want it to be organic and authentic. And if I'm commanded, then what, what does it matter? I think we're turning things upside down at that point because you think that what you think is the best is the best thing in the world. It's, by the way, that's a little prideful, but this is a very American thing in our hearts. Yes, God commanded it, but that is a good thing. God spoke words to his people for their good. He speaks words to us for our good so that we don't go off into weird places. Just think of all the places that man-made religion takes us. Just think of all the different ways that all the other religions take people. Paganism doesn't set a good standard for worshiping any god. And so God says, this is what it looks like to worship me. This is what it likes, looks like for you to fully live as a human the way that I made you. God commanded it because, not because he's a stickler for rules, but because he wants to be worshipped the way 
that He made us. He made us, on the one hand, to sing. That's super cool. Singing is beautiful. I met my wife in choir. I love choral music. Just the voice themselves without all the instruments. It displays the beauty and the glory of God. You can't help but think, man, this is worship. Even when you hear a secular choir sing sacred music, when you hear Handel's Messiah sung aloud, which is, ba is all scripture, it draws us to worship. The variety, the beauty of how God created us to sing in the human voice is astonishing. That's just one example of what God commands and, and what is good for us. On the other hand, God didn't make us to cut ourselves and bleed before an altar. God didn't command us or make us to offer human sacrifices on an altar. Right? There's all these things that we can go off in a, into weird land for. And so the commands, the statutes, the instructions of God are, are for our good. And as we receive it in faith, God's word, his instruction is good, delighting the heart and the eyes. Verse 6, he puts a remembrance on the lips of Israel. Remember, they're singing this. Israel s sings this as a song. And then he says, let's turn back on history. Let's look back and see and remember how God brought you out of Egypt. We also, we sing because he got us up out of there. He delivered you, brother and sister Christian, from the iron furnace, from the, from the Egypt of the bondage of your sin. He picked up the burden off the Israelite in Egypt. God delivered and he, he spoke. He spoke in the secret place of thunder. Now you heard the NIV this morning, it says thundercloud. But it also, it's actually is the secret place of thunder. Secret place of thunder reminds us of how God has spoken intimately in the past. The booming voice of the Lord to Moses in the cleft of the rock. Caring for his people in the secret place in Sinai. Right, God gave his word at Sinai and we have no idea where Sinai is today. We have guesses. It's not like a million people live there now. It's not a hospitable place. It's a hidden place where God sustained his people with, with his word. Where God displayed not only his revelation of his word of what he wants, but he also showed his mercy and grace to people who are stubborn in heart. You see, Israel is shown that they ought to rehearse history. We're shown that we ought to remember what God has done in the past. But for a really specific reason. So that they would know why they should be singing. It's really fun to sing even if you don't know what you're saying. Right? We once sang a South, in high school a South American choral tune that was about the rainforest dying. and I don't even know if it had words. 
but it was kind of fun to sing. But the psalm says, look, this is why we are singing. This is why we're shouting aloud. Not everything is good. Not all of our lives is all happy, peachy, and cane. Sometimes things are hard. And in those hard times, we can say, look at this specific thing that happened in my life. Look at this specific thing that is unfolding that I cannot control. And yet, God says, you can shout aloud to him. Why? Because God is still God. Because God's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Even when we sin, even when we build our golden calves, when we complain in the desert time and time again, we still know the light of God's face. We still feel the rain of His rain cloud. We still hear the voice of His word. And this is what we're living by in the shadow of His majestic word, in, in the shadow of His majestic work. We're experiencing the reality that He has brought us here and He will continue to be at work no matter the good or the bad. And this is what Israel's doing. As they, if this is a song for the Feast of Tabernacles, what they did in the Feast of Tabernacles is set up tents, remembering the time that they lived in tents in Sinai. And they lived and feasted in these tents for a whole week. Eating, celebrating, remembering that difficult but glorious time in the wilderness. And you might ask, well, why, why do such an interesting thing? Because they, they were remembering where they had come from. And they were remembering God's sustenance through that time. He had brought them out of a land of Egypt. They, he had brought them out of slavery. Now they had their own land. Now they had their own homes. Now they had their own fruit trees that they didn't plant. Vineyards. No slave master was telling them what to do. And singing this song, they're learning to say, it was God who brought us here in the good and God alone. And we, in a similar way, ought to reflect back on God's work in our lives. Although we, our people never walked through a wilderness and lived in tents, still there were trials and God brought us through. Still there were good things and God brought us through. Verse 7 points at three things that God does in our lives. First, and he did in the life of Israel. First, in your distress, you called and I delivered you. God delivered his people. Number two, he answered you. But third, he tested you. Now, it's really easy for us to sing when, because God delivers us. Ultimately, from the, the, the weight of sin, the curse of death, 
it's really great to sing praise because God has answered us in our difficulty. But what about singing because God has tested us? I don't, I'm not, I don't want to, of myself, I don't want to sing because God's testing me. I don't want God to test me. But Israel experienced this testing twice in the wilderness at Meribah and other times as well. Meribah is a place, it, it's a place of testing both at the beginning and the end of the Exodus. They're in the wilderness and this trial happens and God is testing to see, is Israel going to trust that God will provide? And now the answer at Meribah both times was mo mostly nope. God similarly tests his people in this day. It's not to crush us, but to refine us. Somebody reflecting on this said, everything is a test of character. Everything is a refining work of God in our lives as Christians. God proves us by prosperity and by adversity. God proves us by joy and by sorrow by hunger and thirst, by sickness and by health, by all his word and by all his providences. For those who are in Christ, these, these works are refining. And I think as we sing and we reflect on God's history in our lives, how he has worked, we look back and see some of the most difficult times and we say, yeah, God refined me there. God reminded me that I need to humble myself and trust in His provision, providence. Moving on from verse 7, we see that God did not leave Israel in the wilderness all alone. As He's answering them, as He's testing them, gives them something. And the psalmist rehearses in verses 8 and 9 and even verse 10 some of those monumental things that God gave Israel. And you, you can hear it and hear, O my people, O Israel. What is this but re recalling the Shema, the, the Deuteronomy 6 the thing that Jews will repeat regularly. God is one. Not only that, we, we overhear the Ten Commandments in verse 9. There shall be no strange gods among you. You shall not bow down to any foreign god. Again, the, these monumental things of God's word that ought to be the bread of life to these people. And finally... He brings out some of the, from the most famous and essential song of the Old Testament, which is the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Now, I didn't catch it when I began reading this again, but this psalm is really a, 
a mirror of Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses that he sang as he's trying to instruct the people of God and handing off the reins to the next guy, Joshua. But the psalmist, he's doing it with this artistic and, and fluid take that we hardly notice it, which is really the beauty of it. The more we sing Psalm 81 and the more we reflect on the rest of Scripture, the more we realize that this is bringing the Song of Moses to this current generation, to us even today. Verse 10, then, is a fitting end to this stanza. Open your mouth wide and I'm going to fill it. What do you need? What, what is your satisfaction? What ought to be your satisfaction in life but God's provision? With what, we ask? With food like the Israelites long for at Meribah? Food or water? Yeah. With the Word of God that we wait on and, spec and expect to fill us up? Yeah. All of the above. God promises to provide us what we need. With the bread of life that Jesus relied on in his temptation in the wilderness? Yes. The psalm, this psalm and all the psalms are preaching the Torah. And they're anticipating Jesus. And I think this, now as we turn to verse 11, we're, we're going to see how we're brought to this tension. Yes, sing aloud. Yes, remember. Yes, remember even the hardness of our hearts. Open wide and I'll fill it. But finally, we, we hear this call in verse 11 and on to repent, to turn. Right up until verse 11, we could be pretty positive, just reminiscing on the past, singing, shouting. Some psalms even are like that, and that's okay. Some psalms, there's no distraction at all. It's just purely focused on praise. But this psalm gives us a point of tension that's essential for us to remember. As we worship, we remember that the human heart is stubborn. Verse 12, for all that rehearsing the good times is important, we must take time to reflect on the waywardness of our hearts. But my people wouldn't listen to me. Israel wouldn't submit to me, he says. We sing. The psalmist, in putting these words in our song and on our lips as we sing it, we sing these words and Although it's not a, a strict confession, we confess. I, I too struggle to listen. I have this stubborn heart. I don't want to submit like the wilderness generation. I want to do my, th my own thing. I would not listen to God. I should be given over to my own stubborn heart and follow my own devices. And this is the punishment God time and time again as a consequence for that hardness of heart, for that rejection of God, God handed them over to their own ways. 
Read the book of Judges just in case you're not sure where that leads. But it's a, a terrible thing to be said, you know what, just do what, do what your heart desires. As a, as a kid, that might sound great. Yeah, I get to do what I want now. I don't have my parents' thumb on top of me. It's going to be better now that I get to determine where I go in life, what I get to do. Sometimes it can feel great, but oftentimes, as we turn into our own devices, our own counsels, it's self-destructing. The things that we wanted are the things that actually don't always go so well. This punishment from God is severe. As we reject God, and He hands us over to our own devices, the unrepentant heart is being hopefully led to repentance, but if not, then it is an afterlife without God's mercy and grace. But there's always hope. Asaf here in Psalm 81 puts on our lips in verse 13, oh, that my people would listen to me. Yes, you can be handed over to your devices, but yes, you can still turn to me while there's still time to walk in my ways. God's deliverance is still possible for you if only you would turn and listen. He calls us to turn from our own desires and to follow God's way. If you do this, you'll be fed with the finest wheat. You know that word is like the fat, the cream of wheat. I didn't realize that that was a, actually a thing that is in the Bible. Cream of wheat in the Bible right there. A few times, also in Deuteronomy 32. The finest of wheat, the ESV says. And with honey from the rock, he'd satisfy you. You see, we're not simply called to just obey, but in faith, we, as we put our faith in Christ and respond by doing what he calls us to, he offers us satisfaction. As we close then, I th it would be helpful to be reminded, I think, that as Christians, we don't have just a handful of holidays every year. Instead, the Lord has appointed that we gather regularly. We gather once a week, weekly, to remember. This whole gathering of the church is commanded in Scripture, and in, the author of Hebrews warns us not to neglect it. Why? I think the same reason why uh, Psalm 81 was written. Because remembering is so essential for us as humans. It is so easy for us to go after our own way. It's easy for us to think that, well, I just need to check off the box and go to church. No, this is actually for our good. Even as I preach, I am convicted and reminded of the satisfaction that the Lord grants. We, we gather to shout for joy and to find satisfaction in the worship of our God who has delivered us from the dominion of darkness 
And not only do we remember that generically, every week we remember specifically the work of Christ, His shed blood, His broken body for us as Christ's work is applied to all those who put their faith in Him. As we take communion this morning, then, we're, we're rehearsing history. We're remembering. And Lord willing, as we remember, it ought to incite us to shout aloud to the Lord our strength, with all our strength. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that You would grant us now the joy of remembering. And even as we prepare to take this communion meal, we... We confess the stubbornness of our hearts, and yet we also rejoice in the deliverance in Jesus Christ. That we are not saved by what we have done, by the prayers we have prayed, but because Jesus died and rose again for us. Through the free gift by faith, we proclaim your salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us joy in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.